Amen. Well, we have reached the last sermon in our series through Mark's Gospel that began four years ago. Personally, it has been extremely refreshing to be able to spend so much time considering Jesus and His life during the the weeks that I have been scheduled to preach. Uh, Next year, I am looking forward to starting a a new series in 1 Timothy, but I know already I'm going to miss the Gospel of Mark and just focusing on the person and the work of Christ. There is simply no one and nothing better to study or to think about. But we still have this morning. So for the last time in a while, I invite you to navigate with me to Mark in your Bibles. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 16, looking at verses 1 through 8. Mark 16, 1 through 8. Now when you get there, before we read our passage for today, I I want you to notice verses 9 through 20. There's a good chance those verses are in brackets or there's a note about them in your Bibles. And uh, the reason these verses are are set apart is that they are any of the earliest and best manuscripts that we have in the New Testament. Uh, The best Greek manuscripts that we have are known as Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. And both of those don't have verses 9 through 20. Some of the other old manuscripts and languages like Old Latin and uh, Syriac and Armenian and Georgian are also missing these verses. In addition, early church fathers like Eusebius from the 4th century and Jerome testify that these verses were not in the majority of the manuscripts known to them. And many manuscripts that we have with these verses in them actually have scribal notes saying that they weren't in the older manuscripts. And if you just read verses 9 through 20, you will notice a few things. You'll notice that the transition from verse 8 to verse 9 is pretty awkward. You might even notice that the style of writing is a bit different from the rest of Mark's gospel. And you might notice that these verses almost seem like a a selection of passages from the other gospels cobbled together to give Mark a nicer ending. And so from both a manuscript perspective and a writing style perspective, there isn't any good reason to consider these verses as original. So why are these verses still in our Bibles? Well, because of the unique way that Mark's gospel ends in verse 8, it's likely that a scribe appended his own ending to round out Mark's story in the years after the book was written. And because this longer ending had made its way into the manuscripts that a famous scholar named Erasmus from the 15th and 16th centuries had access to, it also made its way into his very influential work called the Textus Receptus. That work was heavily relied upon by the translators of the King James Version of the Bible. And so verses 9 through 20 were included in the King James Bible. And due to the dominance of the King James for centuries, most Bible versions today continue to keep these verses in their translations with some kind of footnote or some kind of special notation. If you're wondering what's in these verses, just read them. It's a a quick summary of some of Jesus' appearances after his resurrection and then the initial unbelief of his disciples. It also includes Jesus' rebuke to them, along with his charge and promise to them. 
and it ends with his ascension and the proclamation of his gospel or the gospel by his followers. What's contained in this longer ending uh, is orthodox. The only thing that might sound a bit odd is the mention of disciples being able to drink deadly poison in verse 18, which we don't see explicitly mentioned in other New Testament writings. But even that is in the realm of possibility, since we know that God supernaturally protected his apostles in the early years of the church. You might remember Paul becoming famous on the island of Malta after having shaken off a snake that had bit him in Acts 28. All in all, verses 9 through 20 are a helpful summary of New Testament teaching about what happened after Jesus' resurrection. But we shouldn't consider these verses to be inspired words from the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this morning, we're going to end our exposition of Mark where the best manuscripts end, verse 8 of chapter 16. Okay, so with all that out of the way, let's stand now for the reading of God's Word. Mark, chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out. And fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. My wife loves predictable holiday or Christmas rom-coms. Every Every year around this time, there seems to be a new batch of light, feel-good movies where two good-looking people find love and happiness in the midst of the bustle and hustle of the holidays. Kelly loves these kinds of movies. Some of you might as well. You know, for, for a significant demographic in our society, you might say that is the season for light-hearted love and mistletoe. You know, the story arcs of these movies are all pretty similar, and they all end in predictable fashion. The Gospel of Mark is not such a story. It would not be something you would want to adapt into a holiday Netflix romance or a Hallmark movie. In movie terms, it's probably more like Inception than It's a Wonderful Life or You've Got Mail. It's a story filled with ups and downs, that leaves you hanging at the end. Mark features a lot of action, not a lot of dialogue. 
It's fast-paced, full of impressive scenes. Mark moves us through the life and ministry of Jesus quickly. There isn't the long build-up to Jesus' birth that we love to read about at Christmas. Instead, at the beginning of the book of Mark, he, he doesn't waste any time in introducing us to Jesus as the authoritative one. He shows us through encounter after encounter how Jesus demonstrated that he was the Son of God. But Mark also shows us how Jesus was rejected by the mainline, mainstream religious establishment of his day and how he was misunderstood by his own followers. Yet Jesus pressed on to the cross in order to be forsaken by God and die as a substitute for us and for our sins. He gave his life as a ransom for us and and through his unique death on Calvary, the reality of who he was and is could no longer be denied. The Roman centurion exclaimed, truly, he, this man, is the Son of God. But in the verses after that confession, as Mark concludes his book, it can feel like we've been left hanging. In Mark 16, we learn that the tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. But verse 8 ends on a surprising note of fear. And while some have tried to tidy up this ending, as mentioned earlier, I believe that Mark purposefully ends his gospel with Jesus' resurrection in a way that causes us to consider that this is, is actually really where the Christian life begins. His unique ending tells us that, that Jesus' resurrection is not the end, it is actually just the beginning. And it's with that perspective in mind that I want us to look at this final chapter of Mark this morning. We're going to take it in three parts. First, we find an unexpectedly empty tomb in verses 1 through 5. Then a crucially comforting message in verses 6 to 7. And finally, a stunningly appropriate ending in verse 8. An unexpectedly empty tomb, a crucially comforting message and a stunningly appropriate ending. This final chapter informs us that Jesus triumphantly rose from the dead. And through, though that ends this gospel, that is just the beginning of our Christian lives. First, the empty tomb, an unexpectedly empty tomb. From the end of chapter 15, we know that Jesus died on Friday afternoon and was buried before sunset by Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph had courageously and, and quickly acted that day in order to have Jesus properly put in a tomb since Jews were required to rest on the Sabbath. Now, as we come to chapter 16, we learn in verse 1 that after the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices. Uh, this would have been after sunset on Saturday. There were probably just a couple hours after sunset when the Jews could still buy and sell things that day. And Mark tells us that three of Jesus' female followers went out to buy some spices. Now, these three women were all at Jesus' crucifixion. We learned about that back in Mark 1540. And both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary saw where Jesus had been laid by Joseph back in verse 47 of chapter 15. Apparently, Salome hadn't joined them for that on Friday evening, but she was with them again when they went to buy spices 
on Saturday. Now, if you read Luke 23, 56, it tells us they actually had already prepared some spices and ointments on Friday. But apparently they decided that they could still use some more. Luke 24 also tells us that a woman named Joanna and potentially some other women were, were with them. Well, the fact that Mark and the other gospel writers mention the presence of these women at Jesus' death and at his burial and his resurrection is significant. It actually attests to the, the truth, the veracity of the gospel accounts. Because the eyewitness testimony of women was often dismissed in those days. If the resurrection of Christ was something that the disciples tried to fabricate, the writing about these women at the scene of these critical events certainly would not have been the smart way to do it. But the gospel accounts are true. They are not the, the wishful thoughts of some religious crazies. They are trustworthy records of what actually happened during Jesus' life. And it was these women who stood by Jesus in his final hours and in his death. And the reason they got together to buy spices was so that they might go and anoint him. Now, in verse 2, Mark tells us that very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Well, Mark specifies that they did this on the first day of the week, on, on Sunday. That's why we worship as Christians now on Sundays. We worship together as those who believe in, in the hope and the resurrection of Christ, which occurred on the first day of the week. Now, now, on that Sunday, the woman went out to the tomb very early. John 20, verse 1, tells us that it was still dark outside. But Mark says that the sun had risen. Now, what that means is the woman probably left for the tomb so early that day that it was still dark. But when they arrived, the sun had begun to crest over the horizon, which in God's providence would allow them to clearly see all that had unfolded at the tomb. Why did they go so early? Well, this little detail recorded by Mark points to the eagerness of these women to anoint Jesus at the earliest possible time on Sunday. They probably knew that if they waited too long, the, the stench of death and decay would only grow stronger. And even though Nicodemus, as John 19, 39 tells us, had already provided a mix of myrrh and aloes when Jesus was buried, the woman probably wanted to add their own contribution. They were eager to serve their master. And there is courage in their resolve. Their love for the Lord caused them to make careful preparations for that morning. It, it woke them up when it was still dark outside to go visit the tomb of a man who had been convicted of treason and crucified while by, the, by the elites of their society. Elites who, who were mocking him as he died. But these women were willing to go to great lengths to serve their Lord. And it is right to, to pause here and just remember these women. They were devoted to their Lord and they did something about it. Is there that kind of, of strong devotion to the Lord in your own heart? Are you here this morning for the perceived benefits of a Christian community or, or out of mindless routine? Or, or are you here because you want to offer your own sacrifice of worship to the King? What spices 
Have you been busy preparing for the Lord? Well, let's move on to verse 3. We read there that as these devoted women made their way to the tomb, they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? These women were eager to anoint Jesus, but on their way they realized that they would need some help. They were worried about the heavy stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb by Joseph. And this tells us a couple things. First, it tells us that the woman must have been unaware of Pilate's order to have the tomb sealed and guarded, which Matthew writes about in Matthew 27, verses 62 to 66. The chief priests and the Pharisees were worried that someone might steal Jesus' body. Falsely claimed that he had risen, so they they requested to have it guarded. The second thing this question of these women in verse 3 tells us is that they themselves were not expecting the resurrection of Jesus. What they were expecting was to find his body in the tomb so that they could anoint it. So as they went to the tomb with with spices in hand, these women were, were not worried about guards, They were not entertaining the idea that Jesus might not be there. They were just concerned about whether there would be someone around who would be able to lend them a hand and help them with the stone. But we read in verse 4 that as they approached the tomb, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. To their other surprise, the very large stone had been rolled back for them. Well, Mark doesn't tell us how this happened, but Matthew does. Matthew writes in chapter 28, verses 2 to 4 of his gospel, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead man. Who rolled back that stone? Well, God rolled it back. His angel rolled it back, and the guards at the site were essentially paralyzed with fear. Now, know that the stone wasn't rolled back so that Jesus could come out. It wasn't like some some boxer needing uh, a door to be opened from his locker room so he could enter into the arena of his new life. We know from the Gospels that Jesus was able to move about in mysterious ways in his glorified body that were different from the ways we're confined to move now. The stone wasn't rolled back by God for Jesus. It was, it was rolled back for who? For the woman. It was rolled back for the disciples. It was rolled back so that they could see that the tomb was indeed empty. God wanted his people to see the evidence for the resurrection. These women were worried about getting access to the inside of Jesus' tomb, but they had no need to be anxious. God was taking care of things for them. He made sure they had all the access they needed. And I think in this, there is a simple reminder that we also need to remember that God is is always taking care of us. We're prone to needlessly worrying. I know I am. I know that, you know, I worry that things won't turn out the way that I've planned, or I worry that things are going to cost more than I wanted to pay, or I worry about what people think. But isn't it amazing how often our worries and anxieties are about things that don't actually come true? 
We think of all these obstacles and difficulties and, and we, we tend to project the worst case scenarios in our minds. That we worry about future tomorrows. But, but when we approach the perceived problems of life and faith, we often find that those worries disappear and that God does actually work things out for our good. We all need to pray that, that we will have more of this kind of practical faith. That we'll walk in the path of obedience to God and, and remember that He is never going to forsake us. Well, this is what these women found to be true. But as is often the case, God was working things out for them in a way they had not anticipated. And in verse 5, we, we learn that entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. A white is a heavenly color. It's the color of the great multitude in Revelation. It's how Jesus' clothes appeared during the, the transfiguration. And, and though Mark doesn't explicitly say so, Matthew tells us in his gospel that this young man was an angel. And upon seeing him, the woman, they were alarmed. Everything that was happening caused these women to enter into an intense emotional state. They had come to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body as an act of service and love. But they were completely shocked by what they saw when they arrived. Instead of finding the body of Jesus, they found an empty tomb and they saw a heavenly being. And that's where Mark's account of the resurrection begins. An unexpectedly empty tomb. Next, we, we find a crucially comforting message in verses 6 to 7. A crucially comforting message. In verse 6, the angel said to the woman, do not be alarmed. And immediately we sense that this angel intended to communicate a, a word of comfort. He said, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. What an amazing message. He has risen. In the Greek, this is a, a divine passive. The idea is that Jesus has been raised by God. That's, that's why he wasn't there. The tomb wasn't empty because the body had been stolen or the, the woman somehow went to the wrong tomb address or because Jesus hadn't really died on the cross but had just been unconscious for a while and then escaped to live another life or because these women were in some kind of dream or hallucination. The tomb was empty because Jesus had been raised from the dead and it was clear for the woman to see. His body was missing. It was no longer in the place where they saw him laid. The evidence of the resurrection is hard to dismiss. The empty tomb has to be dealt with. And the theories that try to dismiss Jesus' resurrection simply do not stand up well to logical arguments. Jesus' disciples would not have lived the way that they lived and died as martyrs for the sake of Christ if they did not believe that the tomb was empty and he was raised. And there was no good way for the Jews or, or the Romans to disprove the empty tomb. If, if they had somehow been able to produce Jesus' corpse, they could have squashed Christianity in an instant. But they just weren't able to do it. The empty tomb is, is what made the early Christians change their day of worship to Sunday. It's what caused Jesus' skeptical half-brother James to turn in faith to him. It's what converted the apostle Paul. 
It's what's been testified by a treasure trove of, of early manuscripts and Christian writings. If we have eyes to see the place where Jesus was laid, we will realize that no other explanation makes as much sense as the one given by that angel at the tomb. Jesus has risen. And that means that death has been defeated. 1 Corinthians 15 states, The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death no longer has its sting because of Jesus' victory over it. Death could not hold our Lord in the grave. Jesus' resurrection proves that He is indeed the Son of God. It's what makes our salvation possible. Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We are saved through the resurrection life of Jesus. We are saved because Jesus lives and his resurrection allows us to live as those who are no longer enslaved to sin, as those who can walk in the newness of life, and as those who can truly seek the things above where Christ is. The resurrection is the anchor of our hope for the future. It's a reminder that, that Jesus has conquered death and that his followers can trust in the victorious life that he guarantees. Maybe you've been discouraged recently. Maybe the economy has you down. Job security has you wondering. Remember that Jesus has been raised. Maybe there's a lot of stuff to deal with at home that's got you a fit, feeling a bit bogged down. Jesus has been raised Maybe you've got some relationship drama going on right now. Jesus has been raised. Maybe you didn't do as well as you like on a test this past week. Jesus has been raised. Maybe you're struggling with ongoing sin or, or a feeling of discouragement. Jesus, Jesus has been raised. Maybe you're battered down by, by world news. Jesus has been raised. Death was the stone that none of us could roll away, but, but Jesus' resurrection has removed that stone. It, it is the ground of our hope. It is the simple but profound truth that sustains us through the down times of this life. And this is news that is meant to be shared. That's why the angel gave the woman a charge in his message to them. He said, but go, verse 7, but go, tell these women were charged with a mission to proclaim throughout Mark's gospel. And Jesus had been trying to keep people from telling too many others about the things he had done. He knew that, that people would, would misunderstand. They would want him to be some kind of earthly Messiah and king. But now his mission was done. He had died for our sins and was raised for our salvation. So his charge through this angel to the woman was to tell. But who are they to tell first? Notice what it says in verse 7. They were to tell his disciples and Peter. Why? why? Why is Peter singled out here? Well, it's because the disciples had largely abandoned Jesus in his moment of greatest trial. 
And Peter is highlighted because he had just denied Jesus three times. He had wept bitterly over his failure to stand up for his Lord. So this command to the woman is really meant to be a comfort to the men who had been closest to Jesus. They needed to know that Jesus was alive and that he still wanted to see them. He is a forgiving Lord. If you have not been living faithfully as a Christian for some time, or maybe you've done something, something wrong that you are extremely embarrassed and ashamed about. Maybe you haven't even told anyone. No one knows, just you. Please know that Jesus died and rose for you. And he welcomes you back. He hasn't given up on you, just like he never gave up on his disciples. He, he wanted them to know that he was going before them to Galilee. He was going to the place where they spent most of their time together. And this was, was just what he had told them before. In, in Mark 20, 14, verse 26, on the night before his death, Jesus had told them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But then he said this, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And so the angel said back in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, there you will see him, just as he told you, just as he told you. On its own, the empty tomb doesn't provide much comfort. Because Jesus' body could have been missing for a number of reasons. But the message from this angel does comfort. Tells us why this tomb was empty. It's a crucial announcement that reveals that Jesus is the risen Son of God. He has defeated death. He has brought salvation. He has given us reason to hope. His life and His promises are are trustworthy. And He wants all to come to Him. No matter how far you have strayed. And fallen. This is the crucially comforting message of the angel. An unexpectedly empty tomb, a crucially comforting message, finally, a stunningly appropriate ending, a stunningly appropriate ending. After the angel's message, Verse 8 tells us that the women fled. They were literally trembling from the shock of it all. Astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. That was their initial reaction. Shock, astonishment, silence. Though Matthew and Luke inform us that these women did tell the disciples later on, initially they were silent. Why? Well, Mark tells us that they were afraid. They were fearful. And not, not in a reverential way. They were simply scared. They, they, were, they were frightened. And that is a natural response to the mind-blowing and worldview-shifting truth of the empty tomb. That's a proper response to, to God's power. Experiencing the power of God should not make you apathetic. It should astonish you. It should make you tremble in his presence. There should be fear. In, in Mark, we have seen that when Jesus calmed the storm, the, the disciples were filled with great fear in chapter 4. In chapter 5, when Jesus cast a, a legion of demons out of a man into a herd of pigs, people, people fled. When Jesus walked on water in chapter 6, his disciples were terrified. 
In chapter 9, the same thing happened when Jesus was transfigured before them. Fear and terror are appropriate responses to God's undeniable power. And this reaction of the woman shows that the resurrection was a mighty demonstration of that power. It was a stunning display of God at work. It was beyond any normal kind of comprehension. And that's where Mark leaves us. When you read the end of Mark's gospel, you might be tempted to think that it has a bad ending. That it's incomplete. It shouldn't end on something happier. Shouldn't we read about how the woman went on to obey the charge of the angel? Or how the disciples did eventually believe and meet up with Jesus? And, and how Jesus restored Peter? Mark could have ended his gospel that way, just like the other gospel writers. But I think Mark is challenging us to ask the question, how will we respond to the stunning power of God in raising Jesus from the dead? How will you respond? Will you flee? Will you ignore it? Will you believe it and go and tell others about it? Like the woman, we too have to come to grips with the staggering reality of the resurrection. And we have to ask ourselves, what, what will we do? Now that we've read the end, I want you to turn with me all back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the very first word, ver verse. Mark started his gospel with these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What did Mark mean by his opening words? In what sense is his book the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What was Mark's intention in writing, in writing that? I think he means that this book is just the beginning. It's an introduction to the life and ministry of Jesus. And where this gospel ends, with the stunning resurrection of Jesus that leaves his, his female followers in, in shock, where, where this gospel ends is really where the Christian life begins. This gospel is just the beginning. Will, will you follow this man named Jesus who was truly the Son of God? Will you love this man who went to the cross for you and defeated sin and death through his resurrection? This is the spectacular news that gives us great hope. Christianity is not just a, about a bunch of, of nice people who do kind things and enjoy being together. The Christian faith is about trusting and following a God who is loving enough to die for us and power enough, powerful enough to rise for us. We all still live in this fallen world full of trials and burdens, some highs, but also many lows. But for those who believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again, there is, there is enduring hope. We will be raised with him one day. But even now, we can live a new life, no longer enslaved to sin and fearing death, but seeking the things above where Christ is. Jesus is risen.
Jesus, he is risen. This is the fitting end to the gospel of Mark. And it's where our lives as believers should really begin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for you are a God who is powerful and able to raise your Son from the dead. We thank you for the resurrection of Christ that that encourages us, that reminds us of the hope that we have. Even this week, we've heard news of, of suicides and people living without gospel hope. Father, you remind us in your word that there is great hope in your word uh, in in the christian faith because of the resurrection of christ oh lord help us to to live the new life that you have called us to live because jesus lives and help us to start even now we pray these things in the name of our lord and savior amen